If I had to write down the number, how many times I've interviewed Dick Vermeil, I guess I would include the auditorium, the press conferences, the group scrums out on the backfield, up in Macomb. I mean, it would be in the hundreds. And then in the one-on-one variety, probably another 30 to 50. But only in this visit did I hear him go into great detail about the exit of Lawrence Phillips from the St. Louis Rams. And I think Coach Vermeil was getting a lot of heat for the fact that he was too lenient with Lawrence Phillips. Yet he says if he had to do it over again, he wouldn't have cut him. He would have tried to help him some more and maybe let some of the players like DeMarco Farr or Kevin Carter get involved and try and turn things around. I'd never heard this story until it was a visit we did on our KTRS Radio Legend Series. We had Coach Vermeil on to talk about his career. Early days growing up in Napa, never thought he was going to be a football coach. He actually was a football quarterback, high school, college, but he thought he'd always work in his dad's garage uh, just north of Napa, Calistoga is where he grew up. And all, all of a sudden he meets Bill Walsh, and that just sort of starts opening doors for him in the coaching world. Taking that Rams job, keeping that Rams job, even though he could have been fired. And he tells the story that Bill Parcells called him during the 98 season and said, hey, man, I'm hearing a lot of stuff that, that you're going to get fired. And Vermeil said, man, they'd be doing me a favor. As much work as this Rams job is and things they had to turn around. But it did turn around, Super Bowl champion. And this is a, a walk through his football life. But taking that Rams job and, and the ultimate success winning a Super Bowl. And then he also talks about the decision to leave just days after the Super Bowl. And he says that was a mistake. And it wasn't coaching burnout. That had happened earlier in his career in Philadelphia. It was just that he thought it was the right time. His family back in Pennsylvania was missing him. The grandkids are getting older. And he just thought it was the perfect time. And he does say on his football resume, one of the things he's really proud of is he was a coach of three NFL teams, the Philadelphia Eagles, the St. Louis Rams, and the Kansas City Chiefs. And he was never fired. He always left on his own accord. And he said, I got to tell you, that's never happened in the NFL, which has got to be true. I'm sure it is. Three three teams never fired. Uh, I also asked him about Mike Martz. Was he surprised that Martz never got another head coaching opportunity? He did say when Martz was up for an offensive coordinator position, whether it was San Francisco or Chicago or Detroit, Vermeil said, I was always called. And I always vouched for Mike and uh, the impact he made on those Rams teams. So this is all part of our Legend Series. You may have heard it on KTRS Radio. Myself, Brendan Weesey, he's the sports director at the Big 550, going in-depth with Coach Vermeil. As always, the KillCoin Conversation is presented by Appliance Discounters, where they are well aware of all the cannots the other appliance guys are telling you about when you need that appliance. You need it right away. Appliance Discounters wants you to make, make your life easier, right? Full in stock, 40,000 square foot warehouse full of those GE appliances. Times are difficult enough. Don't wait two, three months for the appliance. Get it in a couple of days. Lowest price, GE rebates, great service in stock only at Appliance Discounters. Shop any of their showrooms or online, theappliancediscounters.com. As always, our savings are your savings. Also, Marie de Villa Senior Living, corner of Clayton and Wideman Road, beautiful campus in West County whether it's the villa estates, assisted living, whatever type of senior living environment you're looking for, they have it. 
on the beautiful 60-acre campus. MarieDeVilla.com is where you can take a tour. That's M-A-R-I-D-E-Villa, V-I-L-L-A, MarieDeVilla.com for more on this beautiful spot in West County. Also, Triad Bank, one of our longtime sponsors, started with us from day one. And the St. Louis-based bank, 2005 is when it started in St. Louis. Five-star rated bank, so whether it's your personal banking, checking, savings, or you're a business owner looking to expand, make sure you're talking to my good friends at Triad Bank in Frontenac. They're on Clayton Road, and they're on the web at triadbanking.com. We'll start with Coach Vermeil here, and his first thought is going to be about taking that job in St. Louis when the Rams reached out to bring him out of football retirement. Remember, he had been at ABC for, I believe, about 13 years when the Rams called. Well, you know, the message was not a short message in terms of the Rams' interest in me coaching. I had been approached while I was broadcasting a couple times by John Shaw, and I just wasn't ready to go back in, though he didn't say the job is yours, but he wanted to know if I was interested. And at that time, I wasn't. And later in life, you know, after 14 years in broadcasting, I say, well, if I don't accept it this time, then I'll never go back. So that's why I went back. And had you known Georgia and the Rams, and you were their special teams coach in, what, 1970. You had some Rams on your resume, but it had been many years before. Yeah, well, in uh, 1971 and 72, I was, yeah, 71, 72, and, yeah, I was their offensive coordinator. And uh, then in 73, I was the running back coach and special teams coach for the Rosenblum family, yes. So I knew those people, and whenever I went in when I was doing uh, pro games, when I went into Anaheim to do a Ram game, I always made sure I walked down and said hello to Georgia because we sort of had a nice relationship, and I had a real nice relationship with Carol Rosenblum, too, earlier in my career. And so you take the St. Louis job, and it's it's not glorious right away. Was there ever a time, and I know we've talked about it, the first couple of years, like, oh, man, I miss being with – Gary Bender or Brad Nesson, you put on a headset and just go into a Big Ten football game on a weekend. You had to have had some early, I don't I won't say regrets, but maybe doubts about getting back in the game. Well, you know, it was the toughest year I ever spent probably living. You know, it was really the transition from stealing for a living, working 16 to 18 weekends a year and making a living and then doing speaking in the off season and doing and enjoying that to all of a sudden working seven days a week, almost around the clock for 12 months a year uh, with well, actually about four weeks off in the summer and that was it and uh, you know it was a drastic change for me and it, it took me a while to adjust but fortunately I did one intelligent thing in my life I hired the oldest football coach in the National Football League you know the Jim Hannafins the uh, Jerry Bromes the Dick Corey's the, uh, gosh you name them you know old, older guys you know and uh, it really helped me catch up I could never be what I was as my own head coach, my own offensive coordinator, my own quarterback coach, my own signal caller. But I, I could get back into the game and make a contribution as a head coach in a little different way than I did it the first time. But I wouldn't have been able to do it if I hadn't surrounded myself with old, older coaches. You know, John Bunning and, and uh, Peter Junta and those guys, my God, they did, they did a marvelous job in that first year getting me through it, you know, and uh, it was tough. Uh, but fortunately, uh, we were doing things right. Most people didn't recognize it because you're losing, you know. And you can't always measure success in coaching up at the scoreboard. We as coaches, in taking over a losing program, you measure success by improvement on a daily basis. 
you know, and we could see the improvement, but the fans and the riders and, and even the ownership couldn't see it. But uh, gradually, even mid-second year, I knew we were starting to become a pretty good football team, yes. And when you left the Eagles, you're sort of the poster child, I think, for coaches and burnout and saying, I just can't do it. It's so many hours and we're sleeping on the couch in the office. When you came back to the Rams, how did you make sure that didn't happen again? Or how did you change your approach from those Philly years where you did get burned out? Well, first off, my personality is more susceptible to burning out than most people. You know, I'm on the emotional, intense side of the personality. And, uh, you know, sometimes that works to it. A, a, a disaster or a minus. But when I came back, I did a better job of delegating, and I did a real good job in some cases of designating responsibilities and let people work it, and really worked hard at controlling the organization, the detail, uh, the, the personnel with Charlie Army and John Becker, and uh, how we worked, the discipline of the program, uh, the relationship-building program within the team and within the building, and, and, and tried to uniquely change the culture to how we wanted to end up being somewhere down the road. And so I, I did a lot better job of that, I think, in coming back for, for my second tenure as a coach. Coach, your your first big draft class was the uh, the big move to move up and draft Orlando Pace. What were the discussions like in in trying to make sure – that was a, uh, uh, a selection that you could procure, and, and uh, you had, I, guess, I guess you had to know if you wanted Orlando, you had to trade up to one. Well, when I came here, you know, I, 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 I thought I knew what you had to do to build the football team. You know, and uh, fortunately for me, I'd had the experience of building one before. You know, a lot of guys can coach, not everyone can build. And I knew what I wanted to do because I'd experienced it before, and I watched Orlando play, uh, play a lot of college football games in broadcasting. I knew him. I knew his family. I knew his grandma. I knew with the coaches. I watched him practice, you know, like three years. And to me, there was absolutely a no-fail opportunity if you could find a way to move up to draft him. And fortunately for me, John Shaw and Jay Zygmunt did a wonderful job of supporting and, and Charlie Armour and John Becker. Uh, and a good friend, okay, Bill Parcells. Bill didn't want a first-round pick. So he could have traded it with somebody else, I'm sure, but he was willing to trade it with me. And if you go back and look at what we traded to move up, and he got, in today's world, it wouldn't be done. It would not be done. But we're so fortunate because I always felt, see, we went there thinking we had a quarterback, and they drafted number two, Tony Banks, and uh, we felt we had one, so what the next thing we needed was I always felt is a left tackle. No, they had one there, but I, I, I wasn't sure about him. I just what you know. I didn't have the deep faith in him that I would have in a, in a Orlando Pace. Plus, I knew there may never be another Orlando Pace come through the draft. You know, he is so unique. So uh, that's we made that move, and fortunately, it, it really, really worked. There was some consideration to draft the great number one defensive tackle out of USC. I don't remember his name. Was that Russell Maryland? No, no. Uh, or no who, the kid that went to the Raiders, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Some, something it, Russell, maybe. I'm. Yeah, you're not far off. But anyway, <laughs> we brought him in, and I had lunch with him. And when we put him back on the airplane, I said, no freaking way. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and fortunately, when you have guys like 
Charlie Army and John Becker and that staff, and then the packing of Jay Ziegler and John Shaw. You know, it, it, you know, and Carl Harrison is coaching the defensive line, and Jim Hannafin coaching the offensive line. He was drooling every time he saw Orlando Pace on film. You know, it, it, it's a no-brainer if you can get to number one, you know. Daryl Russell. Okay, we were all over it. Daryl Russell was the kid that ended yeah. up, I believe, going Look to the— Look up his career. Look up his career yeah. and compare it with Orlando, okay? Well, I think, I think Coach, I think that pick worked out all right. Orlando Pace. In fact, you'll see him this summer in Canton, and you'll see a lot of your former players. I mean, Marshall Falk yeah. is in Eagles Kurt Ward. Eagles, too, because Harold Carmichael's going in. Harold Carmichael, that's right. Yeah, and, and to think about, I go back to that 99. This is how smart we all think we are in the media. So going into that year— you had drafted Pace in 97. You drafted Wistrom in 98. You pick up Torrey Holt in 99. You trade for Marshall Falk. You sign Adam Timmerman. You had signed Trent Green. I don't know why more of us going into 99, even with the injury to Trent, didn't think, well, this team is going to be really good. In fact, you could tell that story again. You went to John Shaw after 98, which was a rough year. Players weren't happy and the team wasn't winning. You said, I think we're going to be good. And what did John say? You know, don't tell me that. A lot of coaches have told me that over the years. So I brought him down to the offensive staff room and put on some video, okay? Now, that didn't mean much to John, but I just wanted to show him what I was seeing and what I was evaluating and that I was basing my positive comments not on just BS or hope. I was basing it on consistent improvement and a great work ethic, a tremendous work ethic, and a spree de corps that was developed through adversity. Uh, and how they hung together. You know, there there were only 12 guys off the original roster that made it to the Super Bowl in three years. So every guy we added uh, was a, a quality player for the most part, and they had such good examples already on the roster with disciplined work habits and, and uh, meeting habits and disciplined practice habits. And, you know, you just had a good feeling about this team. And the one guy, I guess, obviously it didn't work out, personal problems, but Lawrence Phillips was somebody you inherited when you got here. Well, you tried hard to make that work, and you really, I think, invested a lot of yourself emotionally, which you do with your players. But tell me about probably the sadness there where a lot of folks just couldn't quite get to him and make it work. Yeah, I I did a poor job, okay? I just, I I think back on that, uh, Martin, I think back on that, and I probably today, I know today I would have done it differently okay uh first off when you trying to build a football team you have parameters and you whatever you say to your players you better back it up because soon as you don't back up the standards you set and have discussed and and even maybe had them read you start losing credibility and when you lose credibility it's hard to regain and you'll never develop the trust level that they believe you when you tell them things you're going to do. So Lawrence breaks, I mean, he shows up drunk, okay? He passes out in pregame warm-up. Why? Because the alcohol content was too high, and he passed out. He dehydrated. And when I, and I didn't know, and people didn't know me well enough to know, that they recognized some alcohol smell on his breath from time to time in the locker room, in the, in the training room, but no one said anything to me about it. And I, I'd like to think if I'd attacked the problem early, I could have gradually worked him and got him some help to solve his problems. And I know there were kinds of guys on the team 
the DeMarco Fars and the Kevin, they would love to have helped me, you know. But no one said anything. And then so right away, I saw do that. I can remember it like it's yesterday, sitting him in my office on Monday after the Carolina game and say, Lawrence, what would you do if you were head coach Dick Vermeil? And he looked me right in the eye, great big tears rolling down the cheek. He said, I would cut me. I says, well, Lawrence, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Okay. Now, there are ownerships that would have not allowed you to do that. There would have been general managers that would not have would allowed you to do that because you got a first-round pick invested in, but they didn't interfere. But that one thing hurt Lawrence, and I would do it differently today. But I'll tell you this, it gets the intention of everybody else on the roster, believe me, because it's easy to cut someone that can't play. When you cut somebody as gifted as he was, a first-round pick, you establish a level uh, of believability. Okay. When you say and you would do, what would to, what would you do, do differently, it. Coach? When you keep saying you'd do something differently, what what do you mean? Well, I would have brought the best players I had in the team today, and I would have set Lawrence in the middle, and we would all discuss his problem. Okay, and uh, and I'd ask eight or ten of the guys, do you think he's worth saving or should we kick his ass out of here? Because he's not one of you guys. And and if he doesn't change his ways, he won't be here when we start winning. And I would give I would give them some options. And not not that that takes a load off me, but it's a little more fair to a kid that had a lifetime of problems. You know, not everybody's raised like I was and other players are with a mom and dad and all these other things where you learn a lot of common sense principles to how to take care of yourself. But he didn't have many. You know something? I say this today, and Carol will say it to you, too. He's not a bad kid. He wasn't. But he had issues. He had issues. And they they magnified as he started creating his more deeper problems. Yeah. I would say this. Coach always could read the room. And I had some of your players tell me this. They said, you know, you'd get up, address the team. I don't know if it's the Monday or maybe it's the Wednesday sort of launch in the week. And they said a lot of times Coach would show a former player a picture on the wall. And he'd tell him a little story about that player, and coach could get even emotional. Say, "I love this guy so much. I love this guy." And they'd say, after a couple of weeks, they'd put a picture up, and they'd say, "Well, we already know what he's going to say." I love, and they said, every once in a while, coach would put somebody up and said, "What a piece of garbage he was!" <laughs> like you, you had to mix it up, didn't you? You had to read the room and know where. If you were too emotional, then they'd tune you out. If you were too mean, they'd tune you out. If you're too nice, you, you kind of always have to keep them guessing, don't you? Yeah. Well, that's right. You know. It- People complicate it, and I'm sure I have from time to time in my life, but it's not really hard to be honest. It really isn't. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it's, it, you can deceive yourself by not being honest, by trying to satisfy the situation or make something sound good. But I, I, I just learned the old-fashioned way from a mom and dad that, uh, you know, integrity was everything in regard to our family. Everything. And uh, it just it in, once it's ingrained on you, and... <laughs> I can have I can remember ownership in the NFL told me it was a fault. It was a fault of mine to tell the truth like I do. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Excuse me. Go ahead. <laughs> Coach Dick Vermeil is with us. Our St. Louis Legends series presented by Royal Banks of Missouri. Brendan Weesey and Martin Kilcoin talking to Coach Dick Vermeil. Uh, Coach, before or after the '98 season, as you're evaluating the team evaluating your staff what was the first meeting like with you and Mike Martz 
how quickly did you realize that that Coach Martz could be uh, the offensive innovator maybe you were looking for? And, and did you know that he would innovate the NFL uh, the, the, the moment he has stepped on the sidelines? You know, no one has a 100% guarantee when they make those kind of decisions. But, you know, I was fortunate. I had watched Mike coach at Arizona State. I had broadcast his game. I'd sat in his office and visited talk football. I'd looked at his films. I knew his head coach as an old, old friend, okay? And then he comes to the Rams, and I'm there at the Rams, and he was already gone by the time I got there, remember? Or I would have hired him in to stay on the roster. And uh, I couldn't because he was gone. And then I always visit with players from time to time and talk coaches. And I I'd hear such positive vibes about Coach March, you know, and it just added to my credibility. And when I, I let Jerry Rome go, it's not because he wasn't a good football coach. He is a good football coach. I screwed him up a little bit. You know, I, I uh, interfered with him a little too much. And I limited it some the second year with what we're doing with the ball because I felt it would increase Tony Banks's past completion percentage, and it did. He went from 51% to almost 59% in the second year by limiting the things we asked him to do, and that hurt Jerry. That hurt Jerry. But when I made the decide uh, the decision to bring Mike in, I interviewed two people, but I really didn't interview him. I just met with him. <laughs> I told him, Mike, if you come, I'm going to let you run the offense. And that, in other words, I didn't delegate it to him. I designated it to him. Okay, And believe me, it, the foundation of the offense, I had been coaching a long time before Mike March was ever coaching in the NFL. See, I, did, I spent a lot of time with Coriel and the staff in San Diego when I was a young coach in Southern California. And the system, the mechanics, and a lot of the basis stuff, uh, I had been teaching with Philadelphia. And Jerry Rome was exposed to that uh, stuff. So we weren't that far off. But Mike added a degree of teachability, uh, of structure, uh, of command, presentation, uh, intensity and in pressure, uh, when to do and when not to do, and those kinds of things to the t- entire package. And he had a great support staff as a coach. He said, Jim, where are you going to get a better offensive line coach than Jim Hannafin? And we bring John Masco. I remember I brought John in, and he thought I brought him in to interview him. I brought him in to hire him, you know, because I knew him. I watched him coach when he was in college. And you add him to We had Wilbert Montgomery with the running backs, you know, John Ramsdale. And, you know, those guys, my God. And I bring Al Saunders. When you bring Al Saunders and Mike Marks at the same time with John Masco and our strength coach, a new strength coach, Dana LaDuke, it's like bringing four other first-round picks with Torrey Holt. I knew we were going to be a good football team. I did not know we were going to be a world champion. And Mike leaves St. Louis with an unbelievable winning record, and I know he's not a guy who's going to play the political game and he can rub some people the wrong way, but were you ever surprised he didn't get another crack in a league that recycles head coaches left and right? And certainly it didn't end on a great note here, but I've always thought, well, some team's going to take a shot with that kind of winning record and that kind of offensive resume. Were you surprised? Well... Yeah, I am. You know, I was his big – I backed him in every offensive coordinator job he got, okay? And Mike will tell you, I backed him for it every one. It's hard to back a guy strong enough to be a head coach. It really is because there's always rumors that follow coaches, either good or bad rumors, and reasons 
the program disintegrated, and you know, and not, everybody has different strengths, you know, and not everybody's built to build a team. There are some people who can't build a team. They can coach the hell out of it, but they can't build it. But I, I don't know. I, personally, if I were an owner, I would have hired Mike March. I would have hired Al Saunders. Okay, both of those guys. You know, we had a recent interview with John Shaw, and and John doesn't do a lot of interviews. We're going down memory lane, and. I said there's a lot of great myths because he was sort of always the guy behind the curtain. Nobody always knew what John was up to. And I said, here's a great conspiracy theory we could put to rest. I said that you guys forced Vermeil out because you kind of had Mike in waiting. And he said, oh, my God, Martin, you should have been in the room. Me and Jay just about had a heart attack. I'll never forget it. That dis- you almost sound like him in saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, people who know John know that that's his voice. Most people don't hear from John very often. But tell me about that move, too. When you left days after the Super Bowl, uh, how you came to that decision and what the room was like, Jay and John in there, stunned. Well, I was honest and sincere with them, and I, I told them this is an opportunity to go out on top, that I, I knew people that were great football coaches, a hell of a lot better than Dick Meal that weren't given that same opportunity and they ended their career by getting fired. You know, I'm proud of the fact that I coached three NFL teams and not got fi- didn't get fired. I'm the only guy that's ever done that. So <laughs> that's a unique characteristic to brag about, and I'm I'm proud of that. So you know, that and my family here. I was starting to get grandkids growing up and all that, and you know, uh, uh, you, you know, it's you miss your family, and and I knew they wanted me to come home. I knew that and be with them and the grandchildren. And uh, I thought, geez, what a, what a great way. And, and, and money has never been the biggest motivator with me. And never had. You asked John. I can remember sitting with him. I didn't have an agent. He says, well, do you want a bonus in your contract for going to the Super Bowl? I said, no. The money you're paying me, that's what you're paying me to do, to take a team to the Super Bowl. I, <laughs> I was never a big guy on liking to give players bonuses. When you pay them real well, you're pay, paying them to play well, you know. So anyway, I came home. If I had it to do over again, I would have stayed, okay? I would have stayed. When you have coaches like Frank Gans working for you, Frank left when I left, okay? Frank left when I left. Uh, he's probably the most complete package I've ever worked with in coaching. And do you think you think if you stay, maybe you guys win another Super Bowl or two, and it may enhance your Hall of Fame resume too? Is that a thought for you? I have had people tell me that I don't believe that. I only believe what I know what happened. Okay, <laughs> you know I, that's all I believe. Mike came within inches of winning the second Super Bowl his second year there. You know, and uh, uh, and it, it just you know they get mad at Mike for the second game because he didn't run the ball very much in. The, second game and that's the reason they lost you better look at the time number of reps or number of runs we ran in the super bowl that we won okay it's about the same the only thing the only thing that makes a difference in the super bowl is if you win it if if you don't win it everything you did in losing it will be evaluated as a reason for losing no uh anyway if i had it to do over again i would have stayed and tried to win another one but to think because i stayed there we would have i don't think that way Coach, I've uh, they've made many uh, many a documentary about that '99 team. I, I remember a, a moment in one of those. It was the first time I heard it. It was before the Minnesota Viking game 
where Isaac Bruce mentioned that he had maybe a hamstring injury or a groin injury. You guys didn't know about it. Uh, he, Of course, he catches the first uh, play of the game, the long pass from Kurt to, to get that game rolling. Uh, did, do you recall hearing about that after the fact uh, that, that Isaac might have been uh, not yeah. quite 100%? Yeah, I remember that. You know, he had terrible hamstring problems my first year and a half there. Yeah. And, you know, thank heavens, I have a brother that's in the Hall of Fame of strength coaches in the United States, and he had been with the Bulls all through those world championships. And he knew people that I got advice from and actually brought him in to work with Isaac to help him uh, cure hamstring issues and prevent them from happening. And so uh, we were really fortunate to have that kind of backup help. Who was the toughest to get through to? You come in, you're an older coach. Like Marshall Falk comes in, you've already been there a couple of years, but Marshall's a real skeptical. He's a tough nut to crack. Isaac had kind of already been there, was established. You guys had a rocky relationship for a minute. Who who were the players that did it? Like some of the guys come in, they know you right away, they love you. Who did you have to kind of – I know you're close with all these names I've mentioned now. Who Whose relationship did you have to work on the most? Geez, I don't know. I think Isaac at, at first was a, a little disturbed by me. Okay, I mean I got that feeling, uh, and it. Uh, but it's not true today. It wasn't true by the time we really got going. You know, a lot of people are, are, are don't trust people because they've never been in a position to trust the person that they're listening to. You know, and it, because it when they tried to, it didn't work. Okay, so I, I see that, but it was not guys there, uh, Leslie O'Neill, okay, I can remember him walking on the field one day on a Wednesday with full pads, but, you know, we never took the pads off for two years, and uh, he'd say, we're going to uh, we're gonna play the game today, or we're going to wait and play Sunday. I said, Leslie O'Neill, we're going to play the game every freaking day, okay, so I knew that kind of vibe, a leader and a good player was, was going through the locker room listening to him, and, you know, sometimes older players just don't belong on a roster like we were building. Oh, they just don't belong there. They've done that before. They, they don't want to go through the work that we went through. Okay? So I don't hold that grudge against him or anybody like that. It's just sometimes you just don't fit because of the, the time of your career you're involved with the, the struggle. Yeah. Did Dick Vermeil, the high school, college quarterback, growing up in Napa Valley, you know, dad had the the shop, you know, the auto shop. What did you think your life was going to be? When did you say, man, I'm going to have a life in football? Or did you think you'd be living in Napa your whole life? I really did. You know, I, I wanted to be a high school football coach. After I, my high school coach, my senior year came there, a new guy, and sort of convinced me I could play college football if I, you know, I went to school and caught up because I wasn't going to college. I was going to stay and work in my dad's garage. He was going to build a new shop for Meal and Sons, Okay all that kind of stuff, but, but I got so involved with football that, uh, you know, I just I kept couldn't wait to the next season, couldn't wait to the next opportunity to learn it, you know, and and then I, uh, you know, I, I go to San Jose State, I meet Bill Walsh, he's a graduate assistant there, he goes as head coach at Washington College in Fremont, I'm going to be his graduate assistant coach when I leave, Kid, he gets a job at Cal as an assistant, so I have to go someplace else, but all those kind of people stimulated interest and I and I enjoyed Hillsdale High School, Del Mar High School, but I, I couldn't concentrate on anything other than X's and O's. I'd be in my PE classes sitting over in a corner drawing new plays and coverages and you know, it just it captured me. Okay. It just captured me and uh, 
I, that, then I decided, you know, I want to get a job where you don't have to teach anything other than football. And God bless because of, again, Bill Walsh. I, I'm coaching Napa JC, which we have the best team in the history of their school. And I get a phone call from the head coach of Stanford University, John Ralston, and he offers me the freshman coaching job. Why? Bill Walsh is an assistant there. <laughs> so, you know, it's amazing how little things and little relationships become a, a magnet for uh, any kind of success that you have. Well, and Bill was a genius, and I feel like he was the first wave of head coaches that didn't have to be like fire and brimstone and three three yards in a cloud of dust, but you could be a little cerebral, and you could be not soft-spoken, but you didn't have to be just sort of a psycho on the sidelines. I, I felt like he was that first wave of maybe a changing yeah, NFL. Martin, that's, good, that's a good analogy, Martin. You know, I really think he inherited that when he went to work for Paul Brown. When he went to work for Paul Brown as his offensive coordinator, and remember when Paul Brown retired, he did not give the job to Bill. So he gave it to Bill Johnson. So Bill left. I was at UCLA. He'd have come with me as an assistant if I hadn't already had my staff ball filled. So he went with Pro Throw to San Diego as his offensive coordinator. And, uh, you know, uh, Bill was, you know, I, I know I knew him like a brother, you know. And I, I'm going to see his wife in two weeks, so his widow. Okay. So uh, he was a, he had a great demeanor, and part of that demeanor, I think, was nurtured by Paul Brown. And it was Bill Walsh, Game 4 in 99. People remember this story, I think. When you guys beat the 49ers, you end the streak. There we are in the bowels of the Dome. You're sitting in that little conference room ready to do your post-game press conference. And Bill Walsh at the time, I think, was an executive, consultant, whatever the title, president. Yeah, yeah. 49ers sticks his head in and says, this team's going to win it all or this team's going to the Super Bowl. Or something. And we were all looking at each other like, what the hell is he talking about? Like, we shouldn't yeah. listen. Yeah, we all, he did that. I remember it like yesterday. I got on his ass the next day, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but, uh, you didn't want that out there. No, you know, the Monday after that game, Martin, I came into the locker room, uh, the meeting room as the head coach, closed the door, and I said, I'm going to say a few things right now, and I'm going to tell you this. I don't want anything I'm saying to you now expressed outside this meeting room today. Forget ever I said it, and I don't want to hear it. I don't want to read the paper. This is me to you. There's only one team in the National Football League that can beat this football team. And fortunately for us, they're all sitting in this room. Just remember that, guys. And that's, I didn't, this, I didn't make elaborate. That's exactly what I told them. And to this day, I don't think any one of them re- repeated that statement to the media or at a radio show or to a friend that leaked it out. It never leaked out. But that's how confident. I was about that football team. Did you really never read the papers? I think you said you'd get home and Carol would start to tell you what was in the paper. No, 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 don't tell me that. Uh, you know, I really never did read them. You know, and, and again, I, you probably heard the story, Mark. I did that because of uh, John Wood. John Wooden told me when I was in the office next door to him at UCLA, he said, Coach, what you don't want to do as a head football coach in, in these big cities is you don't want to read the sports page. You don't want to listen to the radio talk shows because what they write about you that's all good is probably not all true. What they write about you that's all bad is probably not all true. So you don't need the distraction. And he says everybody is sensitive to criticism, and all it becomes is a distraction to you. So you just 
stay away from it to the best of your ability. From time to time, I'd hear things and that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, that's, that's why I never really had a bad attitude about a media person because I just stayed away from it. And then you, I go back into I leave coaching, I go into broadcasting, and I understood their side of the whole thing better when I came to St. Louis, you know. And uh, I just, anyway, that's a true story. Yeah, and and Brendan's heard all Martin's stories over and over, but I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm, as you're talking about media, I'm 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 having a flashback. It's they're four and zero. It's probably that. So it's the week after, we're doing like a Wednesday night live shot, and I'm out there in that auditorium, and Rick Smith, the longtime PR guy, is like, yeah, great guy. Yeah, great and guy. he and you know he comes around. He's got his own isms. And hey, uh, you're not going to pepper the coach for any uh, bull crap, are you? We're four and zero, right? For the first time in a long time. And he's giving me the. And I said, No, we're good, we're good. And then you sit down, and we're in a commercial break. And there's something about your integrity that makes people open up. And I remember saying, Coach, I feel really bad. And you said, Well, why is that? And I said, I was on the radio last year, and I said you should be fired. And I don't. I just felt I wouldn't say that to anybody. I felt like I could. And you said, ah, bleep, I probably should have been. And I thought, oh, okay, we're good. You know, you just, <laughs> but you just made people, you always made people feel comfortable being around you. You know, they, you know what time, Bill, Bill and that, Parcells helped me a lot when I went back in, okay? And I'd talk to him from week to week. And one day he says, you know, uh, <laughs> there's rumors around here that they're going to fire you. And I said, you know, Bill, they'd probably do me a favor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of problems to solve here, and we haven't solved them all yet. <laughs> That's exactly what I told him. Someone told me he put that in his book. Oh, it's well, he, it's a great line. But you're you're 84. It's and you remember everything like yesterday. Your health is good. I take it. And I always tell people if you need to drink some Vermeil wines, because look at this guy. He is forever young. Well, I'll tell you this. At Isaac Bruce's and Harold Carmichael's after induction party. They're drinking for meal wine, okay? Because I'm sending them there. I don't want those guys contaminated by other juice. I'll take that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yes. as, as it should be, and we'll look forward to seeing you in Canton, and it's going to be a, a reunion of sorts. And because there are no St. Louis Rams anymore, I guess when you guys can get together, those are sort of, you know, uh, yeah. alumni I, weekends. You know, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Every once in a while you reap a little positive out of that St. Louis affiliation. Earlier this month, I had a speaking engagement in all the way at the other side of Missouri. I went there, and I poured my wine one night. I spoke the next night. You couldn't get a rental car. So uh, one fellow there said, I have a friend of the, the, the uh, St. Louis uh, family rental car organization. What's its name? The about? Taylors. Uh, Enterprise. Yeah, the, Taylor family. Yeah, the company's name is, uh, excuse me. Uh, well, Enterprise is the big Enterprise, one. Yeah. Enterprise. So he calls Enterprise, and I, I end up getting a great car to drive because they weren't allowing you to drop a, I wanted to drive to Kansas City and leave it there. Well, they weren't allowing that at that time. So because of my affiliation in St. Louis and having some success, this guy in Dexter, Missouri, gets me a car through a, a, a really nice man in Enterprise. I pick up the car and drive it all the way there and drop it off, regardless of the rules. So there are some rewards <laughs> from having spent those three years in St. Louis. Just love Coach Vermeil's humility. Uh, nobody's a bigger critic of Dick Vermeil than himself. Tough on himself for years historically, but just a great person and all about camaraderie, teamwork, players like Marshall Falk and Isaac Bruce, who might have been a little leery of the older coach coming out of retirement. 
were won over by him, and now they're all extremely close. And uh, Marshall will tell you that. Isaac will tell you that. It's so great to catch up with Coach Vermeil. Look forward to seeing him and Vermeil Wines in, uh, in Canton for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's going to be a ton of fun. Remember to subscribe to the Kilcoin Conversation, iTunes, Spotify. Give us a review if you can. If you listen regularly, that always helps out. I don't know how all the metrics work, but if you could just review, subscribe, and tell your friends to subscribe. That way it's all delivered directly to you. All of these segments are always available on Dan McLaughlin's great website, scoopswithdannymac.com. So much content on there. Bernie Miklas with the Daily Bits, Dan's interviews, including a recent one with Rick Ankeel. All of that's at scoopswithdannymac.com. Thanks again to Triad Bank, St. Louis Base Bank, triadbanking.com, or in person on Clayton Road in Frontenac. Marie de Villa Senior Living, the choice for Villa Estates, assisted living, Quite simply, whatever you're looking for in senior living, they have it at Marie de Villa. Also, appliance discounters, so many showrooms all around the St. Louis area, but you can always start that search. Check out the great prices online, theappliancediscounters.com. I'm Martin Kilquin. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a couple of big names next week. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you.